0: Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law, and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. We are joined today by Dr. Gideon Christian a lawyer and assistant professor at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law. Gideon specializes in legal technology and specifically on electronic discovery, artificial intelligence and the law and environmental impacts of technology. Gideon joins us today to discuss how legal technology is going to impact the practice of law in the coming years, why the legal profession has historically been resistant to adopting and using innovative technology, How law schools need to better expose and train the new generation of lawyers to use the legal tech available to them, and why embracing innovation in law is critical to solving the access to justice crisis that affects not only Canada, but many jurisdictions around the world. As you will hear Gideon is an incredibly articulate speaker and believe it or not this was his very first podcast. I suggested that he may want to do a few more because frankly he has a great perspective and it was a fantastic conversation. If you want to hear more from Gideon, you can follow him on Twitter or LinkedIn, links in the show notes, or better yet, sign up today for the Good Lawyer Summit taking place on November 3rd and 4th, where Gideon will be gracing the stage as a member of our legal tech panel. The Good Lawyer Summit is a hybrid virtual and in-person event that will empower entrepreneurs and startups to level up their business while bringing together some of the brightest minds in law to reimagine a future where legal work is seen as a catalyst and not an obstacle. Links as always in the show notes. All right, that is it for me. Please enjoy today's show. Dr. Christian, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. And I guess I can call you Gideon. (laughs) Yes, Uh, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's uh, certainly our pleasure and thank you so much for taking the time. But before we jump into uh, the topic at hand today, can you just give us a little bit more on your background? What got you into law in the first place and how did you get drawn into the area of legal technology?
1: I've always had interest in technology, even as a kid, but more interest in law. So I find legal technology as a very convenient sport to match my two passions, my passion for law and also my passion for uh, technology and computer. So when I uh, finished my law degree and got called to the bar, I decided to pursue graduate education in law. And um, of course, uh, one area I had interest was in law and technology. So I proceeded to the University of Ottawa, where I had my LLM in law and technology, On the completion of my LLM, I did a two-year internship with uh, International Development Research Center, where I got opportunity and funding to research on issues of technology as they relate to developing countries. Towards the end of my two-year internship at the International Development Research Center, I decided to go back to the university, of course, to pursue my PhD, and uh, my PhD uh, actually focused on technology also and law uh, specifically on uh, transboundary movements of electronic waste from developed to developing countries. So when I completed my PhD, I had opportunity to do my articling at the Department of Justice. So that was where I got introduced to e-discovery. So that was how I actually got into technology aspect of labor practice So I spent five years at the Department of Justice as e e-discovery counsel, and that period, of course, exposed me to use of artificial intelligence and technology in document review of legal practice.
2: I'm a big fan of many lawyers, especially with your pedigree, that are intrigued by the opportunity that technology presents to our profession to modernize and, frankly, just do better.
0: Yeah. And I guess just jumping right in here, you know, people hear tech and think of innovation and the future, but I'll put this to you in the area of of the legal profession. It seems that we're a little behind still. It seems that lawyers and the legal profession just more generally has been slow to adopt technology. Uh, Do you agree with that statement? And if so, why, like, what is it about the legal profession that makes us a little bit resistant to change?
1: Uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, Let me sound optimistic, and at the same time, maybe my optimism will be shadowed by some caution or probably cautious optimism. I think I would say we have come a long way thanks to the pandemic. And I find myself in a terrible position where I have to be grateful to the COVID pandemic for something. But the fact actually is that, as unfortunate as it is, the pandemic has actually forced the legal profession to. Make some progress in terms of adoption of technology in legal practice. The COVID pandemic has actually forced um, progress in the use of technology in law. We have witnessed a progress within these past sixteen months that we have ever witnessed in the history of the legal profession. So, notwithstanding that, though, I think we we'll still have a very long way to go. We have a long way to go because uh, the legal profession is uh, traditionally conservative and resistant to change, stubbornly resistant to change. So the problem we have in regards to the use of technology in legal practice is not that the technology is not there and it's not that we don't have computer engineers to design the technology. The computer engineers are there to design the legal technology we need to make our profession as innovative as it could be. But the problem we have is that the profession is resistant to this change. The profession is reluctant to embrace this technology. So you have a situation where you have the computer engineers prepared to design the technology and then the end user resistant to the technology. So that has actually been the big problem we have been having with regards to legal technology in the legal profession. So the technology is there and the technologies can be designed to make our profession as innovative as it could be, but only if our profession is willing to embrace that change at least by doing things different from the way they have always been done. So we'll make greater progress in the profession if... We are willing to innovate, and this requires taking risk. That is the risk
2: of doing things differently from the way that we have historically done them. Absolutely. And I, I, I love that. I could see the passion in your face when you're telling that because this is something that you really care about. For me, it, I totally get what you're saying. The, the tech is there. It, it exists in all of these other industries, providing similar solutions as we need in the legal profession. And COVID proved that when forced, we could do it and we could do it fast. We could make dramatic changes to the way that we're practicing, the way that we communicate with clients, where we work, all of these things can be done. And we proved it through the pandemic because people still needed lawyers, obviously. And it was incredible to see the expediency of the changes when you know the fire was burning and it right. needed to happen. But really the question I wanted to ask you, because- I think we're in agreement there's a reluctance, a hesitancy to change anything when it comes to the practice of law. Why? Why do you think lawyers are so reluctant to adopt these you know, seemingly obvious changes that would expedite and improve the legal services they're, they're offering?
1: I, I think one reason uh, is probably because uh, the profession has historically been resistant. And when you have a profession that has historically been resistant to change, Law students are trained to stick to doing things the way it is done previously. So when you breed that generation of lawyers, they kind of tend to carry on the status quo. I think that has been one problem we have. Even our law schools, you find out that even the curriculum in our law school has always focused on theory on doing things the way it is done. It's just recently that you have had law school kind of exposing students to technology, even from the law school level, exposing them to doing things differently, innovative practice or innovative legal practice. So if we're talking about change to the legal profession in terms of technology adoption, I think our starting point will be to train the new generation of lawyers to be familiar with these legal technologies. If we're able to do that, I mean, this is the future, or they are the future, they represent the future of the legal profession. So if we're able to develop that skill in them, then that idea of stubbornly sticking to doing things the way they are being done, as opposed to bringing technology to do those things, will kind of witness a gradual, a gradual change. But I don't think we'll make much progress if we have the old generation of lawyers who have been trained and practiced law for decades in the old way they have stubbornly stuck to or viewed as being the best way to do those things. Change will be more difficult with that generation of lawyers. This is a challenge, of course, for the uh, legal educators who are educating the future generation of lawyers. to kind of expose them to these technologies and this innovative way of doing things with the hope that you know, when they eventually get into the profession, they will be able to spare that change in the legal profession
2: and i can't agree with you more yeah. that starting with the future lawyers is going to be a lot easier than the ones that have been around for a lot longer and are ingrained in the system but you know just from my own experience i i was always trying to innovate and i mean that's probably why we started good lawyer but <laughs> I was consistently shut down at the firm with any of the innovative ideas that I was trying to put forward. Given the nature of you have to get an articling position, I mean, we've got some really cool new solutions out in Ontario now, where like LPP program, where you can do it a different way. You don't have to work for a lawyer or a law firm to article, but that's a huge barrier that I see. You can have these innovative law students that join a firm to get their article to become licensed lawyers, and then there's... St- just shut down because they're not in charge. And that aversion to to change and to implementing new techniques that their bosses will have makes it really challenging for them to have any sort of material impact. At least that's how I felt.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you uh, because those who have the ideas to innovate, those who have the ideas to push the change are not actually in the position to effect the change so it's like the difficulty you have now as a new lawyer is that you have these brilliant ideas you have these innovative ideas that if implemented can make things better but you are not in a position to implement those ideas you have to rely on somebody who find that idea as being contrary to the way things are done and they are very satisfied or satisfied with the way things have Previously been done, they just felt well. It has worked this way in the past, so why change it? I mean, there is no dispute. We are not disputing the fact that you know the way things were done in the past has actually worked. But what we are saying is this: there are innovative ways of doing those things. There are better ways of doing those things. There are more cost-efficient ways of doing those things. So yes, it has worked in the past. The same way horses were used in transportation in the past, and they worked very well. But you can't compare I mean, yeah. that to you know, using a car to perform the same task that you previously used a horse to perform. So it's one thing to have the idea. It's another thing to find yourself in a position where you have the opportunity to implement those ideas. And that seems to be the problem we are having in the legal profession. You have the younger generation of lawyers that have the ideas. Or you have the older generation of lawyers who are kind of opposed to the ideas and they are at the ones at the head who, of course, you need their blessing in order to be able to implement those ideas.
2: Totally. And I'm obviously a little biased because, you know, we're working on good lawyer and, you know, we're not building e-discovery software. You know, we're not trying so much to help lawyers. Their efficiencies. Efficiency on like the legal piece. Because where we've seen the biggest sort of void is on helping the lawyers cover the business piece, which starts with, you know, finding clients, dealing with some of the business admin tasks, and just some of the, you know, not core legal stuff that they have to do. But the whole whole thing is structured around fixed fee services. And to me, that is the key is the billable hour incentivizes lawyers to take longer. And I felt this very directly when I was practicing. It incentivizes lawyers to take longer to do tasks. What does technology do? It reduces the time it takes tasks because it it cuts out the stuff that you know doesn't require a human brain to figure out if you can have an automated solution that plugs in a few of the dots and you know saves you time. But that was something that I got pushed back on when I was in the firm was well, why would we implement that solution? You're gonna be faster and then we're gonna make less money because of the reliance on this billable hour as opposed to just being like here's a solution that we're going to offer you here's a price for it firm to client and then efficiency in that world if you have an upfront price like almost every other service provider around gives you and now the service provider in our case the lawyer is incentivized to get it done as quickly as possible so they have more time in their day would love to hear your sort of thoughts on yeah, yeah on my i think view. that
1: also seems to be that seems to be part of the problem because um well, some of the, those who are actually opposed to legal technology feels that adopting that technology will result in a, a diminution or, of their billable hours or how much they charge the client. So they will prefer to do it the much older way it's being done where you have a lot of hours to bill the client. But come to think about it, as lawyers, we're, those of us who are in the business of legal practice are there to make money, but it's making money the sole objective of being there there's also the important aspect of access to justice. And cost is one of the greatest impediments in terms of access to justice. So if you have technologies or legal technology that can help you reduce the cost available to the client, as well as the time you spend on a particular file, why not adopt that technology? The lesser time you spend on a file, the more time you have to devote to some other files, or even to your own personal life, in terms of you know work-life balance, so it's not just a matter of picking up one file and trying to make as much money as you can as you can from that file at the expense of course of the client. And what, what, what you're going to realize is the fact that I mean, as these technologies begin to develop. Even clients themselves, we kind of begin to question the lawyers why they are not using such technologies to reduce cost. So the fact is that lawyers who are resistant to the use of technology, at a point in time, they may become less competitive, especially where you have other lawyers who are prepared to use that technology and provide lower bill to their clients. So if you have two clients or two different clients with similar marital, one goes to a lawyer and the lawyer prefers to do things the way they've always done it. At the end of the day, the client has like $30,000 bill. And then another client visits another lawyer that uses legal technology. And at the end of the day, they have a bill like half of that, uh, the same amount. Then, of course, that will raise the question, why is the other person paying 15000 and I'm paying 3000 So next time, of course, when you have a martyr, you will not be going to the lawyer that bill you more. You'll be going to the lawyer that will probably bill you less. I, I think uh, you know you have a very good idea. And what this one thing I, I tell people with the innovative legal ideas: do not expect that you know the profession will welcome that idea. Expect that there will be resistance to that idea. But don't give up. Continue to push that idea. If you persist or if you really determined, that idea will sell. If it doesn't sell immediately. You may be able to overcome obstacles, but at the end of the day, if that idea brings something innovative or new, that idea is going to sell in the future, if not immediately. But one thing you should always expect is that
2: there will be resistance to that change or to that idea.
0: True words, right, Brett? <laughs>
2: oh, man, I, I love that because that makes so much sense to me, and you know, it's going to be gradual, but... You know, training the future generation, the law students coming out, and getting them acclimatized to legal tech is critical. But ultimately, I think you kind of nailed there in the last bit you were speaking on, which is the market will dictate. Mm-hmm. Clients will ultimately demand it, and as new players like Good Lawyer and you know many other innovative, like we're a tech company, but innovative law firms trying to do things differently, get exposure to more clients they're going to pick the more affordable, less stressful, friendlier option time and time again. And from my experience, you know, most firms are built on the back of referrals. And when you have happy customers or happy clients, because you're providing services in a new, better way, more people are going to start hearing about you. And I know we've experienced that for sure. We're still early days, but I think that's so well put by you that, you know, the market is ultimately, Going to be the decider.
0: Yeah, I love that. Actually, there's a really interesting podcast that kind of talks about exactly that from David Sachs, who was one of the PayPal mafia for some of some of those who know. And he talked about how it used to be that to sell a software product, you would need to go to the chief information officer at whatever company. But what they're essentially doing is making these products so useful and and valuable to the actual people using them that they're essentially skipping that step and i love that idea they're going directly to the people who will ultimately use them and and Forgoing the gatekeeper and I think the more kind of what you're mentioning the more we can educate our students in law school to know what these technologies are and then when they get to a firm say why aren't we using these and almost force that change from the bottom up I see that as you know just a great way to hopefully change some of the culture and that like as you mentioned that resistance to change moving forward here like what are some of the ways that the legal profession and how lawyers practice may change in the coming years you've mentioned some of this technology how do you see that this will evolve and and affect how lawyers actually change in their day-to-day practice? In coming
1: years, I don't need to look into crystal ball to predict the fact that the legal profession is going to witness increased use of legal technology. The pace of acceptance of legal technology may not be as fast or as much as those of us who advocate legal technology may reasonably want. But it's going to be as much, at least a, a better improvement than you know what we've witnessed before COVID. And this is, of course, because the COVID exposed us, even the unwilling members of the profession, to the use of technology. And at least one thing they have realized from testing this legal technology is the fact that legal technology is not rocket science. You don't need to be a computer engineer or computer scientist to be familiar with the use of this technology. So that has kind of, you know, developed some interest in it. And I see a situation where there will be progress. I'm not expecting that the snail speed with be moving will suddenly turn to internet speed, but at least it will be much um, slower than it has been uh, before now. And another important thing, is in the area of legal education, It is very important for Canadian law schools to strive to introduce or expose their students to legal education before they leave the law school. So if we develop that interest at the law school level, when the students leave and then they are actually in the market now or in the profession as lawyers, there's tendency for them to carry that knowledge, that desire, that passion for innovation along with them as opposed to not exposing them to this knowledge at the early stage, then they now live for practice and they are being mentored and tutored by this same old generation of lawyers who are kind of uh, stubbornly stuck on doing things the old way it has been done. And the University of uh, Calgary Law Faculty, of course, that is one area the faculty has made some progress in terms of uh, innovative legal education. Introducing students to innovative ways of practicing law. And during the pandemic, we introduced the e-litigation course. The idea of the e-litigation course is more like a kind of response to the COVID and social distancing implications. The course aims to introduce students or help students develop skills they need to commence, conduct, and conclude litigation using electronic technology. With minimal or no in-person contact so this of course include things like commencement of litigation electronically which is e-filing service of uh, commencement document electronically conduct of e-discovery of course e-discovery which is exchange of relevant document electronically and questioning and trial you know conducting this electronically so this is aimed at you know Helping students to realize that legal practice is not just solely built on in-person contact. You have to go to court to file a document before the court clerk. You have to appear in court to even argue the most mundane motion or trial. These things can be done conveniently, electronically, to the convenience of all the parties. So this course aims to introduce these students to these skills so that when they are leaving the law school, they are taking that skill along with them then they can build on it. So this is very important. And this is also an important way of exposing our profession to the use of technology. So law schools have a role to play in this area. And I'm hoping Canadian law schools will seriously think about the need to expose their students to the use of legal technology while they are still
2: within the gates of the law school. Absolutely. And I mean, again, during covid a lot of changes were implemented quickly. And so e-filing, I think, became a lot more of the norm than it had ever been before. But it's crazy that there's still so much in-person contact physically dropping off Word documents. That was our
0: articling experience. Like how many times were we sitting there for, we uh, yeah, for, we for an, an hour and you're busy, but we're at the court trying to file documents in person? And as much as it
2: just feels like it's so antiquated and makes no sense in 2021, the fact that the courts are so backed up and access to justice is just this unbelievably massive problem that I don't think gets nearly enough exposure. I think really should put the profession as a whole sort of on our heels, looking at it and saying, you know, this is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And if there are solutions, even if they're a little bit hard to implement, they must be implemented because this problem is massive and we haven't done anything to address it in a real tangible way in, in decades.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. There are better ways of doing things than, you know, the way we do it now. But we just need to accept the fact that the way things are currently being done, even if they are workable, they are not the best way to do it. There are better ways. Of course, it's workable to go to the court in person, stand in the queue for an hour, and then submit a document. (laughs) At the end of the day, what you need is to submit the document. You have done that, or you have filed the document. But the question then is, is that the best way of filing that document? Going to court in person, standing on queue for hours? Absolutely not. There could be better way that could be done. Let's try something new. Then we'll see how amazing those other ways of doing these things could be.
2: I, I love that because I think it ties into something that we were chatting with one of your colleagues, Mitch Kowalski, on another yes. episode in this series about this need for lawyers to be, as the profession, humbler. We need to be humble. We need to recognize that we don't know it all. And we should strive to learn how to do things better. And that was kind of the number one takeaway from our conversation was with Mitch was trying to be more humble as a lawyer, as a profession, and and look for better solutions to to these really big problems that aren't getting solved by the altruistic pro bono lawyer. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I, I yeah. absolutely agree with um, I absolutely agree with Mitch. I think as a fact, uh, I mean, you don't need to be humble to know that you don't know it all because nobody knows it all <laughs> you know though being humble kind of helps you to acknowledge that fact but um that is a fact um we don't know it all. So, as individuals lawyers as a profession we should be open to new ideas new ways of doing things so i on that point i absolutely agree with
2: mitch mm-hmm. i love that and you know my next question i'm going to jump no, in with please. A, an ad hoc question here i had a great chat with mitch He's going to be bringing his class out to the Good Lawyers Summit on our Future of Law Day just to provide exposure. And it's kind of fun, too, given at least all of his classes are remote this year, an opportunity for them to connect. But they're going to come in for our Future of Law Summit and get to see what it looks like inside a legal tech company. Would love to extend that invite to you and any of the students that are in any of your sort of innovative classes. But Absolutely. with that plug there you know, now, I'm... I
1: will absolutely accept that invitation. Like I said, when it comes to doing things differently, I'm very open to that idea. So I accept your invitation and I, I do offer the e-litigation course in January. That is the winter semester. So that's going to be in January 2022. And in designing the course for 2022, I've definitely looked for a way I'm actually going to be bringing you guys in, into the program. So. Yeah, thanks for the invitation.
2: Absolutely. And we accept. <laughs> yeah. So my question was, uh, how are you trying to create that exposure to your students and get them a little more comfortable with a new way of practicing, but in more specifically taking advantage of legal tech and all of the awesome tools that are out there now?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. One good thing I do enjoy about teaching is that I have six years uh, legal practice experience before going into full-time teaching. And uh, the good part of my legal practice experience is that it was not just the conventional legal practice uh, experience. I was into technology law practice, that is e-discovery, so which uh, give me an opportunity to have hands-on training on use of uh, legal technology in litigation. So that experience actually shaped my teaching in a lot of ways. I teach three courses. I teach uh, legal ethics or ethical lawyering. I teach civil procedure. I also teach, of course, e-litigation. So e-litigation is the tech Aspect of my teaching, I also conduct, of course, my research uh, outside my teaching. Basically, focus on technology, artificial intelligence. Even in all the courses I teach, such as ethics, uh, civil uh, litigation, or civil procedure, I still bring in the technology aspect of those courses. When I'm teaching ethical lawyering, I introduce my students to ethical issues that arises from the use of technology in legal practice. We discuss things like ethical issues relating to the use of social media, social media discovery, conventional topics you see in a normal ethics class. But I kind of try to bring in that technology niche to help you realize that even though this is not a purely technology class, there are technological aspects
0: the issues we discussed in this part. Absolutely, that's. Uh, I think that's really important. And actually, I think it's a perfect segue into ta- talking about some of the risks to introducing legal tech, because there are some, and I think they're important to identify and take a thoughtful approach on how we can reduce some of the unintended consequences. Obviously, you're uh, an expert in AI, so I'd love to hear your thoughts around some of that and anything else. But even as far as some lawyers are concerned, even that technology is going to replace them. Do you have any thoughts around, uh, yeah, some of the, I guess, the potential negative consequences and how we can best avoid those? The issue
1: is this, will lawyers be replaced by technology? The answer I think is yes or no. I do not foresee in my lifetime, a situation where a technology will stand before the court to defend a person charged of homicide. (laughs) There are certain aspects of legal practice that still requires human intelligence. cannot replace that with technology. We will still need lawyers to perform those tasks. Are there aspects of legal practice where technology would displace lawyers? Absolutely, yes. In fact, there are aspects of legal practice where technology has currently replaced lawyers. Talk about areas like legal research. Talk about areas like electronic discovery. We have artificial intelligence technology that can conduct legal research at the fraction of time it takes for humans or lawyers to do that. So will technology replace lawyers in that area? Absolutely and for good reasons, for cost reasons and for efficiency. Now talk about document review. You have artificial intelligence technologies like predictive coding that can be trained to review millions of documents Within the fraction of time, it takes human lawyers to do that. Will artificial intelligence technology replace lawyers in that area? Absolutely. In fact, artificial intelligence technology is currently replacing lawyers and has replaced lawyers in that area. So the issue is this. Lawyers have to familiarize themselves with the use of this technology in order for them to remain relevant and competitive in the profession. Because one thing you find out about these areas that technology replaces lawyers is that even those technologies will still need a human to review the works that are being done by this technology, for example, in the area of document review. So if you're a lawyer that has been used to reviewing document the old way, printing them in papers and then going page by page, then definitely you should be prepared to be you know displaced by technology. And the only way you can remain relevant in the profession is to learn how to use technology to review those documents in that way even when artificial intelligence technology or you introduce artificial intelligence technology or you use artificial intelligence technology to perform those tasks you have the competence the technological competence to be able to supervise or review the work being done by the technology Then another question you ask, of course, relates to the risk of you know introduction of this technology into legal practice. I think one important area lawyers should be very conscious is, of course, uh, security of their legal technology infrastructures. Of course, we're talking about cybersecurity. If you're using cloud computing, I mean, cloud computing technology to store your client information, of course, you have to be very careful provide maximum security to ensure that third parties do not have unauthorized access to your client confidential information. And of course this brings us or reminds me of the Panama Papers scandal, which is of course one of the greatest uh, breach of confidentiality by lawyers ever in the history of the legal profession. You have about 11.5 million confidential client document leaked as a result of data security breach which was perpetrated by a third party that had unauthorized access to the the law firm's uh, database and we're not just talking about any client we're talking about very wealthy influential clients and politicians So so those are some of the risks that comes with introduction of technology in legal practice so lawyers have to be very careful in this area they need to get the expertise, uh, the experts to be able to address this risk. But I'm not in any way saying that this risk, of course, outweighs the benefits of this technology provide to the profession. Of course, every uh, benefit comes at a cost. But those risks are risks that could also be addressed in order to efficiently utilize these technologies
0: in the course of uh, legal practice. Absolutely. So is that just growing pains then? Like... You know, we've seen in recent months where hackers have taken over entire pipelines, for example, in the United States. How can lawyers defend against that? Or is that just something that, you know, you hope you're not one of the, the few that get targeted? Those traits are real. They are real, they do
1: happen. You know, sometimes you have this uh, widely publicized because of maybe the, the size of the organization involved. But even smaller organizations, even law firms have been the target of such uh, practices by unauthorized individuals. So in adopting technology in the course of your practice, it is also important to have those experts, especially in the area of privacy, cybersecurity, to provide you with the necessary tools and resources to address this intended risk. Uh, We are not saying that when you implement these risk measures, you are absolutely immune, but at least you need to put in place efforts that will prevent that from happening. So that would be much better than, you know, sitting back and doing nothing and hoping that you're not a potential victim. So it is important to be proactive in addressing those risks than waiting for them to occur before you now react
2: to them. Yeah, and and I'm just like, Imagining sitting in the shoes of a solo lawyer or a small firm who doesn't have the resources to pay the top experts to implement all of these best practices. You know, even I think some of the huge national law firms struggle to tighten up everything, but they do have the resources to pay the experts to come in and implement it within their context. But that's also part of what we're trying to do here at Good Lawyer is provide a mechanism. So, again, all the little guys, the solos, the small firms who don't have bags of money to, to pay for a, a security audit and all that kind of stuff. But with the scale of a platform like Good lawyer, trying to give that protection, that peace of mind to the solos and the small firms who frankly are currently completely left out because they're, you know, trying to be entrepreneurs and build their book and build their practice. They're trying to stay up to date so they're competent lawyers and dealing with all the things that lawyers have to deal with, clients. And then also trying to be the IT guy on site, yeah. protecting everyone's data from hackers that you know, frankly, they're just not equipped to deal with. So do you have any tips for the smaller firms, the, the solo lawyers out there that might not have the resources to pay a third party to come in and give them the security audit or whatever other protections they need?
1: I I must actually commend uh, good lawyers um, (laughs) for for that because uh, and why I think you should be commended for that is because the sole practitioners are often overlooked when it comes to these issues. The the big firms may have the money, the big pores, and the resources. So what about the sole practitioner? They kind of often overlooked. And um, so it is important when it comes to addressing these issues to also have them in mind. So when you have uh, uh, firms like the good lawyers thinking about the sole practitioners and their interests, that's very important and commendable because they are also exposed to risk. I mean, I have seen some smaller law firms that have been uh, victims of phishing, individuals who kind of send emails that pretend to be coming from clients, uh, requesting that they transfer money, and they end up falling for this scam Transferring the money to somebody they thought was their client, or instruction they thought was coming from the client, only to discover at the end of the day they have actually, you know, transferred their client's money to a scam artist. So even when the law societies have talked about imposing the duty of technology competence, there was also this issue raised about okay, if you impose this competence, law firms may have the resources to be able to develop skills to meet the competence. But what about the smaller Firms. What about the sole practitioner? So, for the uh, sole practitioners, uh, I won't say they are excused because of the size of the firm. I think it's also important for them to look out there for resources. You know, for firms that kind of tailor their services to meet the demand of these smaller firms or smaller law firms or sole practitioners. And there are those services out there, so they, they need not go for state of the art. IT infrastructure, which they cannot afford. So it's just a matter of, you know, looking what is out there, that kind of falls within your budget, considering the size and
0: resources of your firm. Fantastic. Well, it's uh, approaching the top of the hour, and I know you're a very busy individual, but before we let you go, anything that we missed, any important points that you want to get in before we let you go here?
1: When it comes to legal technology, I think, uh, there is just a lot to cover within the time frame for this podcast, but I think we've been able to touch on some important, uh, very important issues, you know, with regards to adoption of technology in uh, law and legal practice, as well as risk associated with that adoption. But there's just one area I would also want us to be on the lookout for, and that is uh, the in the area of alternative business structures, allowing non-lawyers to provide a sort of uh, specialized legal service to members of the public. I know that has been a very contentious issue, which is of course uh, tied to the nature of our profession, which we try to, uh, I mean, profession we try to keep outsiders away from. But we have seen uh, increase in you know the use or at least experimentation of alternative business structures we've seen that in some jurisdiction in us uh, the law society of ontario uh, recently launched their, their sandbox experimenting with this method of provision of legal service so i um, think i'm looking forward to a situation where other legal jurisdiction in canada experiment with that and see how we can use that to address problems relating to innovation in the provision of legal services as well as uh, uh, issues
2: relating to access to justice. That is literally what we're all about over here and having kind of sort of stumbled into the profession. First lawyer in the family never really thought about being a lawyer until I got to law school. Don't think I could have stumbled across with such a great team, such an important problem. We're doing everything in our power to try to alleviate some of the access issues specifically for entrepreneurs right across Canada. But there's such a long ways to go. And I commend you on trying to instill a bit more of a modern lean into your students and acclimatize them to to a future that a lot of their uh, seniors at the firms have been trying to avoid, but it's coming, like it or not.
0: Yeah, exactly. Gideon, I know you said this was your first podcast, but You did amazing, and I hope you find some others to get on in other speaking events because uh, that was incredibly valuable. We really appreciate your thoughts. We look forward to seeing you now at the summit. Uh, November 3rd, Future of Law. Yeah, Yeah, uh, I might might be bugging you to be a a panelist. Yeah, we'll we'll follow (laughs) up on that separately. Absolutely. But yeah, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, stick on the line here. We'll say a proper goodbye, but really appreciate the thoughts. Well, Matt
1: and Brett, thank you so much for having me in in this podcast. And I must uh, commend you once again for what you guys are doing in Good Lawyers. I think we need more Of these to be able to push our profession towards the direction it ought to be going on the 21st century which is of course adoption of legal technology you know embrace legal technology more than we have done before it to make life easy for everyone for us as lawyers as well as our clients too so thank you very much for having me
0: everybody deserves a good lawyer If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.